This is episode 126 of the Becoming Human podcast. For over 30 years, Stefan Kestin has been practicing in martial arts. Stefan is a black belt in various types of martial arts, and he is known for helping many jiu-jitsu grapplers learn through his online training content at his websites, grapplearts.com and beginningbjj.com. Stefan paddled 1,000 miles in his canoe in the Arctic, spending multiple days alone in the vast expanse of wilderness with only his thoughts to entertain. That is, that's so cool. Like, immersing yourself in a whole nother world against all your like daily routines. Such a cool experience. On top of that, he serves as a firefighter and is a father to several beautiful children. I love talking with people about how they balance the responsibilities of their lives and with the passions that, that drive them. And to be completely fired up and alive with the challenges that are presented, that's cool. You can find him on Instagram at Stefan underscore Kestin. Before our conversation starts, I'm going to play you in with a track by Christoph Crane called Energy. Enjoy. Energy. Can energy change from one kind to another? Yes, energy can change from one kind to another. Would you like to see how it happens? Sure. Hi. Yes, I would like to thank all those people who helped me with my 25 short, long-lived lives on Earth, on here, on here, over there. And it's all just a matter of time before the sunflower meets that. All right. Yeah. Now I'd like to thank you all for having such an effect on the world in which I live. Now you can call it a mess. If you want to, but you don't got to me, I prefer the connection that I make with all the things outside of me that become reflections of myself and what I've been called to learn for as long as I shall live. Till death do me apart from the ego filled up with that evil sin. Some say it makes a difference to think about what you consume. Other people just live their life as if we're already doomed. It's in my nature to replace all of those wars with love, but important with the fact that I... Wanna run, 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 run But look, look, some criticize those for not acting like they should Distracted by their judgment and attached to what they push Now you can fight against the beast or you can hug a willow tree But either way, rain or shine, that pain will find some guilt to feed There are more, of course, but we won't go into that now There are more, of course it's filthy when it's polished and it's perfect when it's scarred No wonder why the conflict we call monster never lost its heart When I stop and think about it, I'm already off the mark Lost inside the space between myself and my idea of making art Making love, making friends, no doubt I make a difference There's positive and negative effects of my decisions And although my dreams are selfish, I hope you can relate May my attempts of being honest resurrect the fact I'm fake Tie my pretty pink poodle to a post, I'll make a pledge to never lose the open-mindedness that I possess And if I do, close down shop and leave Please tell the others it's an uphill battle With a trick up its sleeve But given the current circumstance and present state of mind I'll be damned and surprised if they can penetrate my spine beliefs But if you happen to catch me preaching the so-called truth Tempt me, call me a liar, gently press me for some proof I'll be more than happy to construct a new safe escape My answer will most likely end in all energy changes shape there are more, of course, 
but we won't go into that now. There are more, of course, but we won't go into that So whether now. volunteering time at the local nursing home or changing someone's flat on the side of the road, it's always up to me and it's always in my control whether or not to serve those around me, you know? And hopefully the times when I do, it's rooted out of joy and not just an obligation that feels impossible to avoid. So I'm happy when I'm here to help and I'm sorry when I'm not, but changing someone else's life is such a complicated thought. Dance along the water's top and try to make friends with the heads that bob above Long the history in martial arts. Um, can you tell us about your history in martial arts? Sure. I guess I've been fascinated by the martial arts ever since being a little kid. You got to remember it was the era of Bruce Lee. It was the era of Kung Fu movies. It was the beginning of the ninja craze. And when, when I was eight years old, I wrote my mother an ultimatum, which was... I want to go judo. It is not fighting. I want to go now or I will go on strike because I didn't know how to spell the word strike properly. And she didn't fold. She didn't want me to be picking fights or, you know, she thought it was violent and that would encourage bad tendencies. And so it took another three years of lobbying to actually get started in judo. But it was the only martial art that she would let me do. Uh, she wouldn't let me do Japanese jiu-jitsu. She wouldn't let me do karate. She wouldn't let me do kendo, nothing else. So I did judo. And at the time, I was kind of miffed about it. At the now, decades later, I'm kind of glad that I started it. I had a really good experience with it. It's a rather traditional school, but with a really caring instructor. It's Frank Hatashida, who basically trained an entire era of judoka in Canada. He was, I think, president of Judo Canada for years and years. I didn't know. I just remember you know, walking up the stairs and having that people slamming into the floor and having that smell of sweat in the air. And so I did that for a few years. And then uh, finally I got old enough and I managed to negotiate training in real martial arts, by which I meant Kung Fu, because everybody knew that Kung Fu was the best martial art ever. And trained quite seriously in things like Hungar Kung Fu, uh, Southern Crane, and Northern Shaolin. It was a school that taught all that. And we would spend tons and tons and tons and tons of time doing forms and really worrying about the position of the index finger relative to the middle finger and the bend in the wrist. And we would spar full contact once or twice a year. And uh, so that in the sense that sparring was fairly useful, it was also kind of interesting how most of your techniques went right out the window. And of course, well, that's because we're fighting with gloves. That's because you know, in an empty-handed situation in real life, we'd be doing something different. Sure, we would be. But uh, um, but it was it was what I was doing. I was, you know, there's a Concord fallacy. I've already spent this much time training. Maybe next month, maybe next year, they'll start showing me the real secrets. And I was a teenager. What the hell did I know? Wow. Uh, eventually, I made the jump to training in a little bit with Danny Nasanto and the various people associated with the whole JKD. Uh, curriculum or JKD approach, which was refreshing. And then uh, trained with Philip Gelina in Montreal. So there we trained a traditional Kempo system, but we also trained in Filipino Kali. He's a dog brother, which meant he did full contact stick fighting with a super light protection. So a heavy rattan stick, hockey gloves, elbow pads if you wanted them, a cup if you wanted it. So is that like uh, the closest that in... in frequency and also intensity that you had to like uh, engage in contact 
No, I mean, I'd say kickboxing and boxing is is also a lot of contact. Um, At that time, though, were you doing kickboxing and boxing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were we were sparring. I mean, and we Philip was very very uh, Catholic, meaning all embracing Mm. in in the original Catholic sense uh, in his approach. In the sense that if we wanted to try out this grappling stuff that we were beginning to get hints of, he had no problem with a bunch of us staying after class, using the mats, and rolling around on the ground trying to figure out the difference between a headlock, grabbing someone's hair in the mount. We had no idea, but we knew the grappling was important, and there were the Gracian action tapes coming out, so we were trying to reverse engineer that. He was okay with that. He was okay with saying, hey, what if I kickbox against two guys at once? Well... Let's try. Let's let's find out. The answer is, you get pummeled pretty good, mm-hmm. and it's exhausting. It's absolutely it, kickboxing two people isn't twice as tiring as kickboxing one person. It's it's at least exponential. It's at least four times as tiring, if not eight times as tiring. Was having someone like that with such an open mind was that an unusual thing for you at the time? Yes, or? it was actually a huge breath of fresh air. It kind of got, I mean, coming from a traditional kung fu background. It really was where you would not really ask questions. I was known in the school because about once a month, I would save up a question and go to the head instructor, bow, and then ask the question. And everyone was like, oh, he's going at it again. But really, any kind of teacher-student relationship where you're afraid to ask questions or you're afraid of the consequences of it, I mean, that's a screwed up situation. There should be a dialogue. You're paying the guy money, for God's sake. You're, you're supporting his lifestyle. The least he can do is answer your freaking questions. He's like an uh, arbiter for a community, right? Yeah. Um, but there's, there's various kind of communities. There's various social structures. There's the, uh, you know, the Sifu at the head, and everyone questions him what doesn't question him. There's unquestioning followers. I mean, I don't know. I, I imagine if you were to, to, to go almost to the Godwin's law of martial arts, uh, if, you, if you were in Jonestown, with Jim Jones, you might be able to ask him the occasional question, but you probably couldn't challenge his authority very much. That's very much a top-down approach, and if you if you questioned, you got kicked out. Um, really, Reverend Jones, is there a reason why only you get to sleep with all the beautiful women? <laughs> why can't I sleep with any of the beautiful women? He probably wouldn't be in Jonestown for very long. Yeah, uh, it's. It's interesting how there's like a there's a variety of dominance hierarchies that get played out right in a, in a niche and over time, maybe I'm stretching that too far, but over over time, certain things die right. Certain dominance hierarchies that are not effective for like for the whole, they don't really end up surviving. And then the the ones with like you know more open mind, yeah, either way. The, <laughs> And just like what you're saying, if you have something to where you retain more people, right, and people stick around, those dominance hierarchies seem to play out. I mean, I've seen that in like even um, in within comedy too, because people seem to be more welcoming in comedy and a lot less competitive, and in podcasting, right, where like I'd uh, someone would happily do a swap cast with me, um, and we would share our audience, right, just to help each mm-hmm. other, um, as opposed to me trying to like compete and stifle them so that i can gain more of an audience mm-hmm. I, I think it depends on whether your perception is that it's a zero-sum game or not i, I think you know for most martial arts schools it's not quite a zero-sum game but it can be perceived as if you get a student 
I'm losing that student. Doesn't matter if you're 20 miles across town at the other end of town, because I'm pretty sure that student would drive 40 <laughs> miles a day to come train with me. I mean, that's crap, obviously, for most students. Uh, but you're competing within a reasonably small. I mean, the truth is, most schools you're competing within a reasonably small geographic area, and um, so that whole idea of win-win isn't working. I'll tell you what is interesting, though, in this latest coronavirus lockdown, uh, locally at least. I'm, I'm in the Vancouver, British Columbia area. There's a bunch of schools that have started doing things like, okay, uh, if you guys keep on paying your dues or helping support the school, we're going to have a series of free seminars at the end of this. And I've, I've volunteered to teach a bunch of free seminars for people that I've never met. I mean, I don't run a school, so it's a little bit easier for me to, you know, I, I don't lose anything. But I, I see instructors at different ends of town going, hey, I'll come and teach a seminar at your place if you come and teach a seminar at my place and then we can both offer our student base something of value uh you know basically bribe them into staying or offer them value uh for staying that's, that's so cool so in so here's the the question i guess like that i was trying to get at before which is like what well, what do you think would attribute to the transition from people perceiving it as like you know, being very competitive and and changing desperation to survive zero sum game. I think desperation to survive. Uh, you know, necessity is the mother of invention, and people are trying to find alternate <laughs> ways to offer value. I mean, I take a look at uh, okay, my so my kids go to school, right? I I used to homeschool them, then they transition into the school system, and now after Corona. They're now kind of cobbling together a Zoom, Microsoft Teams-based uh, curriculum, you know, where they'd have assignments, they interact by email, and they have to interact by Zoom. But if we'd gone back, if you and I, Will, had gone to a school board, any school board anywhere in North America, and we'd made a good case for, you know what, we think it's going to be much more cost-effective, and the kids are going to learn much better, and the teachers will be happier if we move our entire curriculum online. I don't actually think that's the case, but say we had that opinion and say we went to the school board and say they accepted it and said, yes, Stefan and Will, that's an awesome idea. We're going to do this transition over 12 years. We're going to have focus <laughs> groups. We're going to have this, we're going to have that. We're going to try. And, and in the last four weeks, they've had to do 12 years of work in like two weeks. Mm. So necessity is the mother of invention. I think jujitsu clubs are so heavily hit by this, that, uh, They've, they're, they're really thinking out of the box. They're like, okay, I don't know how to use Zoom. I'm a technophobe. Well, when your survival and your ability to pay your rent and to pay your mortgage and to support your family depends on it, you'll figure out how to use Zoom. Um, so I, I think maybe the, the, the wall that people are up against is triggering innovation. And, uh, and I'm, I'm not sure if that's dismantling the the hierarchies i mean I've, I've really i generally dislike strict hierarchies in martial arts that's why i loved brazilian jiu-jitsu so much because generally it was a first name basis right it wasn't I, I got into it long before the whole professor thing um people call me professor casting or sensei or master and it's like please it's stefan and i think just having that title 
allows people to hide behind the authority, right? I mean, it, it's easier to intimidate people into doing dumb things if you're if you've got some big ass label in front of your name. But the fact that I'm a black belt in jujitsu really means that I know some things about jujitsu. It doesn't mean that I have that that itself entitles me to give investment advice or I mean I guess jujitsu black belts have hurt themselves a number of times. So maybe maybe I've got some good uh injury recovery advice for people. But also some of the very worst health advice I've ever received <laughs> has been some from some very high-ranking martial artists. Obviously, I'm not going to mention their names, but man, it's, it's terrible advice. Terrible. Uh, so I, I think flattening that hierarchy is is a good thing. Uh, I, I, the first name basis, it's only a small part of it, but it uh, it's easy I, for people to hide behind titles. I think this a small part of it that plays into a very big part because of that, like that identity, right? And people think and often think in terms of identity, like hi professor. And there's with that, like they have all of these these thoughts that are built around that word, right? Just like when you there's like lots of words, like even like you know, love and, and stuff. You have all of these ideas and what you think of the word love, right? And if I'm trying to describe something different, sometimes that word isn't quite accurate. And you know, that's how, how I feel in the sense of being a father sometimes, because I look at my interaction with my son and I often wonder, um, like, or I, I think a lot about how I approach the, um, the hierarchy between my son and I and in yeah. how to be able to like, you know, set boundaries and set limits and whether or not I am in like an unquestionable authority or if I'm just somebody who's trying to keep him safe and I'm another person who's setting boundaries, just like we all do. I have a little extra as a parent, but like, how do I convey those in a way that's like, not necessarily open for dialogue, but it's not enforcing dominion over someone, right? It's just like a sure. person to person trying to, so you, you kind of get out of my own way as a parent. Obviously it changes over time, right? I mean, if, if your two year old wants to really, really stick that fork in the light socket, uh, you're not going to have a detailed explanation about electricity because they probably won't listen and they're just going to jam it in there eventually again and again. So how you interact with a two-year-old and how you interact with a 20-year-old about potentially electrocuting themselves is going to be very different. So somewhere on that spectrum, I think you're, you're, you go from invoking authority to invoking reason, hopefully, and explanation. And uh, here's, here's a funny thing. I want my children to think critically. So I've actually, in my parenting, as they got older, as they got sort of six, seven, eight, you know, we, we started, okay, here's an argument. Let's dissect this argument. Let's come up with the counter arguments. So this is a good medium to long-term strategy, but it's a bad short-term strategy. All of a sudden you're like, no, you guys can't do this. Or you, well, why? Because yeah. here are the four reasons why I think this is a good. So it can backfire. So I think in the there's some short term pain there, but hopefully when their peers are, you know, they're in their peer groups when they're 15 and 16 and 20, and their peers are giving them awful, awful, terrible advice. Just think of all the stupid advice you got when you were a teenager from your buddies. Uh, that that questioning authority uh, that you taught them by modeling it uh, transfers onto them questioning the authority of their peer or no, questioning authority is the wrong word 
reflexively accepting uh, the authority of their peers. So I, I, I think, I mean, obviously you try to give reasons why, right? There's that famous study of uh, that's quoted in the whole um, marketing circles of, of people trying to, there's a photocopier. And the experiment was, there were three conditions, somebody trying to cut in the front of the photocopier line at a university. The first person is like, can I make some copies before you? And as you might expect, most of the time people said no. The, the third condition was, can I make some copies because I'm late for class and I really need to get to class? And most of the time they got let in, obviously, right? Because they gave a reason why. The interesting case there was when the people said, can I make some copies? Can I cut in to make some copies because I need to make some copies? They most often got let in. They were giving a reason that's not a reason at all, right? Like <laughs> just any general reason. <laughs> yeah. Like, can I make some copies? Because I need to make some copies. So I think with with kids or even with adults, if you can give them a reason why we're doing something, it's generally much better. I mean, I'm a captain in the fire department. So I try to invoke this as well. Being a captain in the fire department is, you know, a large has a lot of similarities with babysitting. Mm -hmm. Uh <laughs> And if you can lay out your reasons for why you're doing something, okay, guys, today we're going to do these four things in the morning. It's going to be a really busy day. We're going to work through coffee. We're going to have a slightly late lunch, but then we'll take the afternoon off or something like that. Or then in the afternoon, we only need to do this one thing because that way, blah, blah, blah. It, it's, it's generally effective. I mean, that in itself isn't going to um, be a leadership that, that, that in itself isn't enough to guarantee leadership, but it helps, right? If you can give a reason why you're doing something as opposed to thou shalt do it because I'm the boss, right? I got the silver bars on my shoulder. So, so there, uh, I mean, that'll work in the short term, but in the long term, it'll engender resentment. And before you know it, you, you've got the crew working against you to undermine uh, what you're trying to get done. And I, I've, I've seen that happen more than once. Seen that with, uh, children more than once yeah and that's what I, I think i'm referring to is less the dominance hierarchy more just effective leadership right and whether or not that looks in the uh, parent-child relationship or you know teacher-student in the professional mm -hmm. environment as well i mean there's also i think one of the most fundamental leadership concepts is the idea of leading from the front right oh you want us to charge across no man's land into those into that german barbed wire all right, well, you freaking get to the front of the line. I, I would be much more likely to follow somebody who's telling me to do something dangerous if they're doing it as well, or do something that follow somebody who's doing something hard if they're doing it as well. Uh, I mean, the uh, so if, if, if you're doing the heavy lifting and your kid sees you doing the heavy lifting, right, or I'll sit with you here while you do your reading, and I'll, you know, like it. That's not an effective use of your time in the short term, but it might be an effective use of your time in the long term. If you can build a relationship with your kid, uh, then, I mean, it's no guarantee of anything. But having had a couple of brothers go down the wrong paths, we're talking like jail, reform school, criminal records, drugs, uh, eventual death. I, I see how much time my parents spent sort of in the mid to late teens on that. And it was 
hugely more time than they would have spent earlier in uh, in their development. And they tried then too. They, they, they did try then too. It just shows how disruptive if your kid goes off the rails and now you've got to come up with 50 grand to bail them out of some Moroccan prison, <laughs> you, to, to pay off that 50 grand, that's going to be a lot of work. I think you're better off to, uh, to put the work in up front. Yeah. It's what I, this experience right now, you know, being like April of 2020, uh, experiencing all most people, at least in the United States, and it sounds like Canada homeschooling um, their children. It's uh, very interesting because you, at least in my experience homeschooling my son, I have a, a better understanding of what he likes about like reading and, um, and math and his whole self-image and the other aspects he enjoys about learning and his strengths and like weaknesses and, and how I can like build a relationship with him there. Like I've often done extracurricular, you know, learning, but outside of school, but I'd never like try to teach him more, you know, a lot more math because he'd already do it in school. But now to spend a lot of time with him on that math, it's like really strengthen our bonds and I get to know him in a, in a different, you know, way. I guess. What's interesting there, and it does relate to, to martial arts, is say you, is, is not only knowing what to do, you might know how to divide 16 by eight, but how to teach that. Because there's different ways to teach it, just as there are different ways to teach a triangle choke. And some people are going to learn it this way, and some people are going to learn it that way. And if you take a look at somebody who's struggling, it doesn't necessarily mean that you need to repeat the same instructions again. You might need to just completely change gears and go, okay, instead of step one, step two, step three, step four, think of it this way. Think of it in visual representation, or think of it as like, Make this guy's shoulder disappear. You can't see that shoulder. Just if you're trying to teach 16 divided by 8, there are different ways you can do it. And depending on the kid, and it, there, there are different ways to make that effective. So figuring out how to teach is just as important as knowing what to teach. I mean, that's when I see my kids get frustrated or when I'm trying to teach something in, in martial arts terms and I watch people get frustrated, unless it's something that's really, really inherently difficult you know, uh, or, or beyond their cognitive or physical capabilities at that time, it probably means that you need to find a different way to teach it. Right. I mean, it, it to, to teach some super flexible hyper athlete, a barambolo is one thing to figure out the series of drills and the series of exercises you need to do to teach a 55 year old guy who's not that athletic, uh, how to do that movement it's possible but it's a different series of steps you, know, you got to break it down more and uh and that, that's a real challenge and i, I think actually uh, making all the youtube videos i've done over the years has really helped with that because i'm just trying to find different ways to teach material uh and and if i can cram a couple different ideas into the same video uh, and really sort of convey the same message from, from different angles. It's like the old kinesthetic versus uh, visual versus auditory learner. Uh, you can say it, you can show it, you can make the person do it and have them feel it. And uh, same applies to any kind of teaching or any kind of conveying of a message. If you're not getting the message across, then it's your fault. It's not your student's fault. Yeah. And so do you, would you look between like the, 
if you were trying to explain it like in an auditory way, you'd experiment with different um, ways to explain it, such as a kinesthetic or a visual way. Is that like, would that be your approach just for like in general, if you are trying to teach something and someone's not trying to understand? Like, what does that process look like on a very basic level? Sure. Try and show it one way. If it doesn't work, try and show it another way. If it doesn't work, try and show it another way. So if we're doing 16 divided by eight, the first thing you could do is say, okay, you know your times tables, right? Okay, so now if two times eight is 16, then 16 divided by eight is two. Okay, maybe that works, maybe that doesn't work. The next step is to get the pennies out. Okay, here's 16 pennies. <laughs> Let's divide them into eight groups. Look how many there are. And if that doesn't work, um, I mean, those there, there's probably other ways to show the same thing. Uh, if if the person doesn't hit the barambolo after looking at it one time, which you probably shouldn't do, okay, let's assess your flexibility. All right, let's get you to do, you know, just a rolling back into the plow. Can you hold the basic plow position? Okay, you can, but you can't figure this out. All right, let's try going from the plow and then rolling through to sort of a forward fold kind of position um, with your legs continuing to point in the same direction. Now you have the second half of that tornado roll motion. All right, now let's work on that first half of the tornado roll motion. Look at how I do it. Uh, try and do it. Okay, adjust these things. Okay, let me try and move your body through it gently by actually manipulating you uh, physically. Uh, okay, that's not working. All right, let's try it on the wall. Let's try a tornado wall, tornado roll on the wall. You know, this, steps like that. Let, let's, okay. Uh, let's do it on my body. Your goal is to pull your head under my leg, right? Pull my belt here, and your only goal is to get your head underneath my leg. Don't put your head away. I'm assuming, of course, here that people know what I'm talking about with a barambolo, but it doesn't matter, right? It, I just showed, like, or just discussed four different ways to to describe or to have a teaching progression for a fairly complicated movement. I don't know. If, I don't know if you bolo. Yeah. Do you? Okay. Mm -hmm. But surely you've tried teaching it to people and they just don't know which direction is up anymore. Absolutely. And it's interesting because I've um, I've had some teaching experiences where uh, a teacher would go cycle through moves really quickly. Um, and they and then we had another teacher come in and he he would spend like a one to two weeks on a technique. And like the difference for me personally, right, uh, of of how I would acquire like those moves would completely change because I needed to spend like a lot of time being able to understand like the fundamentals of it. Mm -hmm. Well, a lot of teaching honestly is showing off mm. and that's a problem, right? Yeah. Like, oh uh, yeah. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, I've seen black belts, like very experienced black belts teach a group of white belt beginner, maybe high white belt, maybe one blue belt, maybe a seminar and they're showing crazy ass reverse triangles from guard that's really ego that's like yeah. hey i know more than you do y yes you do i mean if um I'm trying to pick a mathematician i mean if if uh if richard Feynman taught a class a, a grade eight physics class and he came yes he could blow them i'm pretty confident he could blow all of them out of the water with differential calculus equations all over the blackboard and he would successfully prove that he's smarter than all those kids and those kids would come away with 
no other uh, lesson other than this guy was an asshole. Uh, so then it's what is appropriate to teach that. That's There's the rub. There's the rub. You got to tune it for your audience. And what is the sort of one take-home message that you can come away with here? And when you're teaching a group, when I teach a group of different skill levels, say in a seminar context, I often try and phrase it that way. Okay, here's the single leg X guard. If you remember one thing about this, remember that your hips have to be off the floor and you have to clamp the crap out of your opponent's leg. And if you remember two things about it, then remember these things. As opposed to, okay, here's this super cool transition from single leg X where you control the sleeve and you kick them over and then you transition into, uh, you know, uh, you pop the leg over your head and then you do a, a rolling uh, heel hook attack. Mm-hmm. That that might be the key that an advanced player takes away with, takes takes away, and, and that's a valuable lesson for them. Like, man, I I never thought of connecting my leg locks. I'm picking a dumb example. I never thought of connecting my leg locks to my single leg X guard game. Be a pretty dumb uh, high level player who hadn't connected those two. Uh, but I'm extemporizing here. Uh, maybe they haven't seen certain connections. But uh, that whole idea of like, if you remember one thing from today's lesson. If you remember these three critical things, just remember these three things. Everything else, you'll remember the next time. I've, I've In the fire department, I've been teaching hazards, hazmat for a long time, which is basically like combat chemistry. It's like chemistry for dump truck drivers. And so, you know, there, there, there's concepts in there, like I don't know, how a photoionization detector works. They're semi-complicated. You're probably going to have to hear them two or three times. So it's okay to say things like, look, here's kind of the basic idea. You're probably going to have to hear this two or three times. It'll start making sense after the second time. And by the third time, you'll have it down. And then we can actually use this stuff at a call. So uh, setting expectations. And if there's one thing that you remember, remember that, I don't know, uh, that there's a lamp inside this photoionization detector and the, the lamp energy is XYZ. Mm-hmm. And that's where like correct me if I'm wrong is a common mistake that we make is to be outcome orientated instead of process based right where when we, it comes down to like learning things and striving to achieve something you know we, we um, well for rock climbing I guess it'd be a good example is like I really want to climb like hard like 513 or 512 and it takes people you know years to get there and all you're doing is, you know, is chasing that benchmark. And then along the way, you're like forcing yourself completely ignoring like physical signals, mm-hmm. you know, like your, your forearms are starting to get hurt. You're getting, you're very fatigued the next day and you're just, you know, grinning for it and grinning for it. And, um, sorry, I completely lost my space. No, no, it's, it's a, it's a totally good point of if you just make everything about the end goal, and you don't pay attention to the process, uh, well, a couple things can happen. First of all, you might not get as good as you're going to get. And secondly, you can get burned out, you can get injured, and you're not going to train intelligently. Right? If your goal is to fight five rounds in the UFC, if that's your training, every day you go into an octagon and you find the toughest guy that you can at the gym and you beat the shit out of each other for exactly five five-minute rounds, whatever happens, you're going to be destroyed you're not going to get very good same goes for like a marathon runner okay so what's the goal here the goal is to run 
uh, 42 kilometers as fast as I can. All right, so clearly every day I should go out and run 42 kilometers every day as fast as I can. Like, that's not going to work. It'll work for one, maybe two days, but by, 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 by day four, you're going to be screwed. So that's paying only attention to the end goal, not paying attention to the process. Uh, when I interviewed Mike McCastle on my podcast, Mike McCastle's that crazy guy and uh, um, amazing and crazy guy in Oregon who held the world pull-up record with a 30-pound weight vest on, who's, who's done amazing physical feats of endurance. His, his quote is, train often, test rarely. Train often, test rarely. So if your goal is to climb El Cap, I'm, I'm picking just, I, I don't rock, I've rock climbed a couple times in my life, but I know El Cap's a pretty good climb. I'm right, right? Yeah, yeah you're right. Okay, yeah. so your goal is to climb El Cap. Uh, you're going to train a lot for that. Gonna, your training is going to be different for that. Like your training might involve weight training. That doesn't look an awful lot like El Cap, but your training, your training actually might involve spending most of your time in a gym. If you're in the Pacific Northwest in the winter, you're not going to be doing that much climbing outside in the monsoon, you know, with falling off of rocks because the moss is all over it. Most of the winter, you're probably going to be indoors. That again, doesn't look like, like halfway up El Cap. Your training might be to be finding a new physiotherapist to deal with that persistent tendonitis uh, in your elbow because you've been doing too much gripping and today's training or the emphasis on training for the next week is to work my extensors extensors in your wrist. Again, you don't, I'm sure there's some climbing move where extensor strength is important, but I'm guessing that 99% of climbing yeah, isn't all- extensor. Exactly. It's the opposite, but you might. So part of your training might be recovery. So your training doesn't look like you're testing. Uh, I mean, the canoe trip I did last summer, the thousand miles in the Arctic, most of my preparation for that didn't look at anything at all like what it looked like in the field. I would have loved to have been able to paddle for eight hours a day, a few days a week to, to get those muscles in shape. But most of the preparation, most of the getting ready for that journey was things like, okay, today I need to dehydrate uh, 12 jars of tomato sauce. And I need to make a list of every float plane company within a thousand miles so that if I do need to evacuate, I'll have that list. Now I need to get cell phone numbers so that I can text pilots and text business, uh, float plane companies, not just their front number because I might not be able to call. My sat phone might be dead and I might be texting them off my Garmin. I need to find out what kind of planes they have to know whether I can abandon my gear or whether they can land on a, on a lake. Do they have floats? Do they have a big enough plane to take a boat? I mean, that's, that's a, that's actually, that was several days work, just figuring out bailing out options and compiling that list of stuff. Uh, the very different process from actually paddling for 14 yeah. hours a day and swatting at mosquitoes. <laughs> well, my son even had that when when he was going up to um, when he's learning to play the guitar and he was practicing. He's like, I think it was a week and a half into practicing. He's like, wait, you mean to tell me that this is what they do all, all the time and they don't like 
they're not only on stage. I'm like, I'm pretty sure this is like 80% of what they do and 20% is up on stage. Like they play, you know, very similar songs um, that they know that they write so they could practice it to be on stage, you know? And like, even when you watch people who are in the movies, those scenes have been shot many times. I, I think with kids, it's a little bit different because adults have got a higher ability to delay gratification, right? Like you could um, conceivably be out there doing an hour of calisthenics. Say you hate calisthenics, but you got a competition coming up. You could conceivably square that circle and go, okay, I don't like this, but I need to do it. Because two months from now, when I'm doing the, I don't know, the Seattle Open, it'll help me. Uh, or, you know, that's why adults go to university and kids don't. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, tr listening to this transcript or reading this transcript of this lecture again and again and again and trying to do these complicated problems to figure out differential calculus sucks. But three years from now, I'll be able to become a electrical engineer. And then I can truly begin building that electric car that I've always wanted to build or whatever, right? That's a significant delay of gratification. I think with kids, it's a fine line between making like jujitsu, for example. Yes, you could teach the exact intricate detail. You know, okay, no, 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 little Pedro, your left, you know, the third finger on your left hand should be in this position when you're going for the cross collar choke and observe how. I'm applying this movement at a 10 degree versus a 20 degree angle and basically kill all level learning Yeah. versus making it play, right? I mean, kids learn through play. Adults learn through play as well, but there are times when it, uh, when you have to put the nose to the grindstone. And really, I think that differentiates successful adults from not successful adults that I'm not the first to mention that, to point out that the ability to delay gratification is probably one of the biggest differentiators between those people who are successful, whatever that means, and those who aren't. That ability to to not Sorry. watch that Netflix, to binge the ability yeah. to not binge watch Tiger King, <laughs> and instead focus on developing your I don't know your Photoshop skills because you really want to become a, a web developer or whatever. So then I have a question for you: Is um, I got three and you can hold them off, you know, think about some, but for one of them, how would your approach for homeschooling your children be? And what's your language around when, you know, around work and your expectation for work um, in terms of like why they'd have to do math or writing and, and how do you, do you encourage them to delay gratification? Do you have a conversation with that or do you just withhold that and have that expectation? No, this is what we got to do knowing that they don't, have the understanding to delay gratification. Um, well, my, most of my kids are a little bit older now, right? So I'm dealing with an eight year old, a 13 year old and a 16 year old. So with a 13 and 16 year old, it's an easier conversation. Like, look, uh, you want to do this with your life. Uh, say you want to become a vet, then you're going to need to do, you're going to need to have these basic math skills. And then you try and make the math as sort of challenging yet achievable as possible. Uh, and I think a lot of frustration around that really comes from people not understanding what the hell it is that they're doing or just doing things mechanically. So, uh, again, it, I think it changes and it's, it's got to be catered to the child. Just as one individual needs to be 
feel how that triangle choke feels. Oh my God, that's how you move your body. And the other individual needs the steps. First do this, then do that, then do that. Uh, every kid's, how, how to motivate that kid is going to be different for each kid as well. I don't think there's a, I mean, sometimes explaining why is important. Uh, if I'm doing chemistry uh, with one of my kids, I can often relate it back to fire department stuff. Look, this idea of a, what a mole is, we use this on calls, right? We, we use this, uh, this isn't theoretical. This is connected to something that, that's really important for math, like uh, uh, algebra. Mm -hmm. You know, we do this stuff innately anyhow. And, uh, and here's some examples of why it's important, right? If you're a, every builder, or, or you're doing Pythagorean theorem. Uh, you can point to some, you know, blue collar carpenter who uses Pythagorean theorem every day, right? They, they don't have a right angle triangle. They use a three, four, five. It's very simple. Why do they do that there? And if you, so I don't know if there's a blanket answer, just, just like motivating or conveying information to every jujitsu student's a little bit different and sometimes very different, uh, motivating people it's on a one by one basis really uh motivating the same is true of firefighters right to to get one guy to to do something that's good for you or good for the department or good for the call it's a little bit of, of a different tactic that you can take with the next guy so i don't think there is a cookie cutter one one size fits all thing especially when it's your kid right with your kid if it's your kid if you're dealing with 1,000 soldiers, yeah, you'll give a good speech, and hopefully that speech speaks to 70% of them. But when you're dealing with your kid, I mean, you don't have that many kids. It's not like the old days where you had 10 kids and you figured on four of them dying before they hit age <laughs> four, and three of them would be wastrels, and one of them would go into the clergy, and overall, you'd, things would kind of work out. Uh, <laughs> and we have fewer kids, so the, the stakes are higher. And it goes back to that that process, right? And being more process oriented, like getting to understand who who your your kid is, and getting to understand yourself, right? Like and these two independent things, like you know, you're teaching your child or raising your child, and you're also um, you're teaching yourself things, and you're pursuing whatever things that you love. And within like those two relationships, um, there's that process of figuring out what your child likes and how they're motivated and also how they learn, like what kind of learner are they? And I almost think that's more interesting than trying to get them to understand their like times tables, right? Cause yeah. like that in the sense that you get to know like, like who they are fundamentally and connect with them on that level and either relate to them or not, you know, depending on the kind of learner that you are or what motivates you. Like I've been experimenting with my son for, you know, since he was five, when we can have these conversations and build that relationship um, very deeply, just like, how do you like to exercise? Mm. Like, like in that way, like not, we don't put exercise and go out for an hour and go lift weights. Not that, like why, what motivates you to go outside and move and play yeah. and like, you know, and, and how can I meet you there? And, and, and sometimes you got to pull rank, right? Um, sometimes yeah, you got to pull rank and like, no, you just need to remember, like I ultimately, I don't care if the seven times tables is hard. Like, you, you got to learn this or nothing else is going to make sense. This will make, you know, I'm telling you, you got to do this. But if you do that for everything, you're going to lose, you can lose your students. Yeah. You know, once in a while, you can say like, look, 
this won't make any sense to you right now. Trust me, it'll make sense down the road. But if you're always saying that, mm. uh, if you're always saying, you know, keep on doing this hungar form enough times and then magically it'll translate into fighting ability and there's no proof of that ever, uh, you're, you're, you're losing credibility all the time. You're hemorrhaging credibility. Just trying to find that middle way then. So uh, could you tell me about your experience planning and um, setting off on your thousand mile solo kayak trip? Um, well, there's, there's so much to talk about there. I think it's uh, one of the critical things there is that was an example in delayed gratification. I had done a bunch of longer solo trips in my 20s. Uh, they're roughly comparable in length. And I had really enjoyed them. I'd found them life-changing. And uh, in my mid to late 20s, I'd started exploring on maps and researching. This area in Nunavut used to be called Northwest Territories. Uh, this is basically the barren lands. If you've ever read like Lost in the Barrens or any of the Farley Mowat stuff, People of the Deer, this is the territory that they're talking about. Um, and I've been fascinated by it. It's a very rich historical area. Samuel Hearn tromped through there on his, when he basically walked across North America from Churchill to the mouth of the copper mine looking for, for copper for the Hudson Bay Company. It's, it's an area I've been fascinated by. It's like, like wild country like that. It's, 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 well, it's called the Barren Lands for a reason. <laughs> and so it's, so it's just like not, so not vegetated whatsoever. And uh, no, uh, th that's the high Arctic. It, mm -hmm. Barren Lands mostly uh, no trees. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, mostly shrubs. I, there are, depending where you are, if you're like, if there's a little sheltered uh, valley or a slope that's facing south at exactly the right angle, you might find uh, some small trees there, but. Trees might be six feet high, might look perfectly normal, but they're they're stunted. So lots of krumholtz, like what you see on a mountain, um, just open, open tundra, wild weather fluctuations, uh, caribou. You know, this is where the car you know this is where the caribou herds travel in and the summertime. The landscape rolling or steep. It depends. It, it's it's more rolling than say the mountains we're all used to here. Mm -hmm. uh, it's Canadian Shield Country, so if you imagine I don't know the area around uh, Minnesota, just stripped of trees, uh, with um, sort of rolling tundra, so lots of low shrub, low bushes, um, wilder weather, like cold storms that last for a week, and then a about 10 trillion mosquitoes per cubic meter with, with black flies. Oh yeah, it, it's a, because there's so much water up there. There's so many lakes and swamps and muskeg and, and there's so much water that every little pond, every little rivulet, every little uh, bit of water sitting on top of the permafrost is home to, you know, mosquito larvae and black flies. That it's, it's, that, it, that makes it pretty harsh travel in the summer. In fact, some of the uh, the Inuit I've hung out with, they look at winter as travel time because now they can, especially in the after January, like February, March, that's the time to be out on the land because now all the water is covered. You can take your skidoo or your dog sled across the water. And you don't have to worry about the damn bugs. So it's, it's a nice reframing of, of 
the harsh Arctic winter conditions. But I, I like paddling, so that kind of rules out the winter. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, it's something I've been looking forward to and sort of dreaming about and fantasizing about for, for decades. Uh, I had initially thought I was going to do that trip in 2012, 2013. That was, that was kind of the, uh, the time that I'd been looking at doing it because life got in the way, basically. After my 20s, I, I, went to I finished my university. I started working, got married, uh, had a, started with a fire department. All of which is not very conducive to saying, okay, guys, I'll, uh, it's, it's June. I'll see you guys all in September. I'm taking off. I, it, it's not impossible, but especially if you've got young kids in the house, generally uh, new mothers frown upon that sort of behavior. <laughs> uh, so it was, it, I had to delay it. I had to delay it. I had to delay it. And then right around the age when I thought, or the time that I thought I'd be able to do it, I was going through a messy divorce. And, uh, and so that took years to resolve itself and for me to build up the uh, the, the resources. Because were, were you worried ahead. that you would execute on that at that time? Yes. Oh, for sure. Oh, yeah. I, I thought like, well, there goes that idea. I'm going to be seventy freaking years old by the time I end up doing that. And then you were uh, you were doing jujitsu a lot, or yes. sorry. So uh, where what rank were you in jujitsu? Like, what was jujitsu to you at that point? It was like a lifesaver. It was a it was a one air. As basically the answer to getting through a divorce is to work like a son of a bitch. That, that, that's ultimately the answer. Yes, I'm financially destroyed. Yes, I've got my kids. Yes, I'm trying to live in one of North America's most expensive cities on essentially $8 an hour. That was my post-child support, post-spousal uh, support. You got different words for it in the States. Post-alimony and post-child support. Uh, wage from the fire department, $8 an hour. So it's like, okay, I, I need to um, work like a son of a bitch to build up other streams of income. And this is going to suck. And eventually I got through it, right? Like, okay, what am I going to do? Am I going to pack up and uh, go live in a cabin? I mean, I, I seriously considered that like, okay, let me find <laughs> not quite a trailer down by the river, but pretty close. <laughs> it would have been a small 300 foot cabin up in the mountains. But then what kind of lesson is that teaching to my kids? Like when, when times get tough, do I just pack it in and go uh, take my ball and go home? Or do I stay in the fight and keep on pushing? And so then it became pretty clear that the answer was to stay in the fight and keep on pushing. While at the same time, trying to maintain and improve the relationship with my ex-wife. Because it became clear that if you're co-parents, especially co-parents in the same city, with kids going back and forth, like that's going to go on for a while. So even if you're, um, we're really going off topic here, but the point is it, it was a, a long and difficult process and it, nothing was fair about it, but really it doesn't need to be fair because it's not about you. It's about the kids. Mm -hmm. So eventually got to a good enough place with that ex-wife where I could actually get around and say, hey, you know, I've been looking forward to doing this for decades. Would you, basically, would you, I know, I know we're divorced. Would you mind taking the kids for two months? Uh, maybe a little bit more. I don't know exactly yet when I'll get back. So I can go and gallivant around the Arctic. And to her credit, she said yes. So that would have never happened if I hadn't put the time in to 
try and keep a civil tongue, even when it was really hard to keep a civil tongue, even when every fiber in my body wanted to haul off and really tell her what I thought. And that, that was really difficult. And arguably, that's a lesson from martial arts. Because, you know, uh, if you're on the bottom of a mount and somebody's squishing you, every fiber of your being saying, like, bench press this guy off of me, right? You want to do that to, to get this guy off you? Of course, it's the wrong thing to do. So asking yourself, what is the goal here? And before you type back that angry email that's, you know, that um, is a whole bunch of four-letter words and just gives her a piece of your mind, ask yourself, what is the goal here? What is the goal here? What is the goal here? Maybe I'll send this tomorrow when I calm down. And it worked, right? And I'm, I'm sure, I'm just talking about it from my end. I'm sure I was a jerk face in, in, in her eyes as well. But bottom line is that eventually we got to a good enough place where I could then, you know, pass off the kids for almost two months and go do this thing that I'd been looking forward to doing for 25 years and go experience that. So it was a little bit behind schedule, mm -hmm. uh, but it's a big, big item off my life list. And of course it makes me want to go do it again, but that's a whole nother discussion for another day. I, I'll give it a, I'll give it another few months before yeah. I <laughs> float uh, the idea of crossing uh, Greenland on skis or something like that. And you said that that like what drew you to that area in particular? You said it was a very harsh environment. I've I've been in that area a few times. Uh, I've been in the Arctic a fair bit, including like the the Alaska. You know, where Alaska hits the hits the ocean, so that uh, North Slope. I've spent time in the Yukon as a raft guide, um, paddled the Nahani and the Mackenzie Mountains in the Northwest Territories. I've paddled the Seal River uh, in in essentially northern Manitoba, which goes through a little bit of that same area. Mm -hmm. I just find the that sense of being out there in the tundra by yourself with nobody incredibly like liberating you asked what drew me to that area mm -hmm. I, I i've been in port, you know i've been in many parts of the the north i've spent a summer raft guiding in the yukon i spent a summer canoe guiding in the in northern saskatchewan i spent a month or two working as a consultant in northern alaska on the north slope there right where basically alaska hits the arctic ocean i've uh paddled the Seal River a couple of times. It basically runs right along the border of Nunavut down to Churchill. It takes you through similar terrain. And there's just something about the, the desolation. Desolation is the wrong word. The barrenness of it, right? It's, it's you. It's the land. There's nobody around. There's no towns. There's no villages. There's uh, life gets stripped down to paddling or traveling camping and sleeping it just simplifies life greatly and it, it, it's remarkably remarkably beautiful if it weren't for the bugs it'd be way more popular right? if you could just get on top of an esker and walk for 200 miles that'd be fantastic i mean you might be able to do that in the fall when the bugs are all dead but then the weather's already beginning to change and just thinking about the history of this area i mean it's no different, really, from somebody 
who wants to go walk the Camino de Santiago in Europe, right? The, the old pilgrimage trail. That's a much richer experience if they know the history of the pilgrimage route and they know that, you know, okay, I don't know, uh, the history of Santiago and the history of Lisbon and the history of Catholic uh, pilgrimages. And, you know, it, it just, it increases the, the depth of the experience. Mm. Uh, the, the more you know about about an area, the more you can get into the nuances of it and uh, appreciate the nuances of it. It reminds me of a time when I was sitting on a um, on a ridge looking at a mountain pass, and I'd learned that in that mountain pass, they discovered 9,000 years ago that there's like archaeological remains, that there's um, Native Americans that would use it as a throughway. And then um, also I've been studying mycology and um, forestry, I guess, like what kind of trees and stuff there are. And when I first looked at that mountain pass, I saw just a really beautiful, like, you know, you shit, like high hanging valley up there and the trees look cool and the mountains look cool. But now, like, I'm thinking about like it as a, as a through fair, what it must've looked like as a travel, you know, traveling, if they would have took in this trail and I'm like, I can see a little section where I'm like, Oh, I bet you a really cool patch of mushrooms are over there. That's a really interesting collection of trees. I see slide alder and like, the whole thing just comes alive to me because I'm able to understand like, like what's there. Is, is that kind of similar? A hundred percent. And you want to take it to the next level. This applies both to the Arctic and it applies to the Alpine settings. You start learning about glaciology and about how the ice has shaped the landscape. Because once you learn about that, and once you learn what drumlins look like, once you learn what eskers look like, once you learn how um, hanging valleys were carved by small glaciers going through them and then hitting the big glacier, that again adds a whole nother level of interpretation to it. I mean, I, I when I get back into the north and I see my first esker, so an, an esker. For people who don't know, I, okay, so imagine there's glaciers running all over the land, right? And they're melting. The glaciers melt, and the water has to run underneath them. So basically, it forms a river flowing at the bottom of the glacier and eventually exiting out. But as that glacier melts, the riverbed gets dropped on the land. And that riverbed looks a lot like a giant ribbon or uh, half circle of sand and gravel, just like you'd expect at the bottom of a river that snakes across the landscape. You see it in the Alpine, they're usually shorter, and you see it in in the Arctic, and it goes on forever because those glaciers went across relatively flat land. And just sitting there and, and I mean, it, it has implications for you. There's, there's usually good campsites on Eskers. There's usually elevation. If you get up there, uh, you can see for long ways. There's usually wind, and you can uh, get some good... Uh, wind going so it brings the bugs down and if you're looking for wolf dens and so on the tops of those things are great for finding wolf dens but just to think about this land being compressed under a mile of ice two miles of ice and one time ten thousand years ago a surging river being right here flowing exactly opposite to the direction you're traveling <laughs> it, it just adds a whole nother level of, of interpretation and i'm sure if i got deeper into the glaciology it would add further levels of meaning to just just looking around uh, and the better you get at botany uh you learn to light recognize i don't know uh, 
Linnea borealis. It's a small little plant. You got it in the Pacific Northwest. We got it here. You're walking through the bush, and it goes from being like, oh, look at that pretty little flower, to, oh, hello, Linnea, my old friend, right? You're, you're, you're recognizing old friends. And so uh, I, I guess it's no different than, again, jiu-jitsu, where you're learning. At first, a triangle choke is a triangle choke. And then you start recognizing the nuances of, oh, okay, I could hook under the arm here and I can flare my elbow this way, or I can grab my shin, or I can do this. But at first, it's just a triangle choke. At first, it kind of looks like a you know, a neck scissors mm-hmm. yeah, with maybe an arm. If you, if, if, and that's fine, right? You're, as you become more comfortable in something, you learn to recognize the little nuances, the little balances, and it just becomes a richer and richer experience. It's, it's an eternal game. All of that, right, is an eternal game that has been very satisfying. Did you see that footage of the guy being interviewed on the BBC? Uh, no. So we just got, uh, he's being interrupted. He's some expert on something, and the the person is, is, is being done remotely. And then his teenage son bumbles into the room, and he just loses <laughs> his mind. Get the fuck out, you dumb fucking twat. It's, I'm on the fucking telly. <laughs> And then he turns back and is trying to act all professional again. So, <laughs> kudos to you. He did better than the guy on the BBC. Yes, well, thank you. <laughs> um, getting out in, in like, those experiences of, of learning and playing those eternal games. I never, I didn't understand them when I was a kid. I didn't get it. Learning math and stuff wasn't very interesting to me. Um, I didn't have people around me who introduced me to looking at things in a different way. Um, and exposing me to them in perhaps a way that was more intrinsically motivating. But when I, um, in the wake of like being divorced and trying to deal with that and moving to a whole new state, um, I got into martial arts and martial arts exposed me to that. Where like the the learning process, instead of like striving, I'd want to strive to do things to achieve excellence so that that could like feed ego and expectation and like success, whatever that is, right? And so if I wanted to, you know, be a hip hop artist or a poet, I want to do that to be like the best. And I want people to recognize that. That's why you do such a thing. And then through martial arts, I was like, oh, no, like the process, like just doing it for the sake of doing it and like learning it and understanding the subtle nuances and your preferences is like such a for me, it's been such a satisfying experience that it's given me a sense of fulfillment and like in a way to, to, um, to point my aim at, you know, and it like, it never ends just like someone perhaps could like constantly pursue like money and like, you know, and fame and that could never end, but like pursuing, you know, like jujitsu and and running or or whatever those games that we play, like painting even, um, it's never ending and it's so satisfying. And like, it's very interesting to me because pursued in, um, in a particular way, right. in like a healthy way, balancing all these things, family and such, it has like a positive feedback. Like you get healthier physically, right? Like I know wrestling and stuff sometimes can give you some injuries, but like it's, it's for the better overall. And I've grown up with people who've perhaps not had these things, these, mm-hmm. these games to play. And they were on destructive patterns, like chasing, you know, um, very, uh, it's the kind of what you were saying before is they didn't have the discipline to, um, to stop pursuing instant pleasures. And I, I think that distinction that you made there, I don't know if you meant to make it, but you used the word satisfaction and you used the word pleasure. 
And I think those are two different things. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with pleasure. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with happiness. But distinguishing between satisfaction and happiness and recognizing that they're two different things and that they generally operate on two different timescales, generally satisfaction is more of a long play and happiness is more of a short play. I mean, I, I, I'm sure there are exceptions, but those are different things. And so at the end of that canoe trip, I was asked by a friend's girlfriend, he goes, she went, but did you really enjoy it? I kind of looked at her because it was really physically tough, like really physically tough. I was destroyed physically. I was like, whether I enjoyed it or not is kind of the wrong question. I mean, there were moments that were highly enjoyable, but it was more about the satisfaction. And so I think satisfaction is more of a longer term play and probably a more rewarding thing to aim for overall. Uh, I, I think if you're just always looking for enjoyment, uh, in mountaineering, there's that idea of type one, type two, and type three fun. Yeah. And I think that for, so type one is like when you're doing it, you're having a great time. Type two is it's kind of tough. You're all focused. Maybe you're frustrated. But as soon as you're done, you're like, okay, that was fun. Type three, it takes you a few years to get over the difficulty <laughs> and go, okay, that was fun in retrospect. I'm glad I did that. And uh, so I think type two and type three fun are verging more on satisfaction and type one fun is verging more on, on short-term pleasure. Not there's anything wrong with short-term pleasure, just I wouldn't let it guide your life. Well, and it's interesting, right? Because there's like, it's often things aren't right nor wrong. It's just somewhere in between, right? And with individual people, I, I love, like the podcast is a great experience. Um, and life in general, I love to be able to get to know people and, and how exactly they play that game. You know, how do they use their, you know, the only um, non-renewable resource, which is time, right? Yeah. And I've seen myself once I've just indulged in more of the type two fun, uh, my life's changed a lot and the way that I look at life and the way that I like meet my needs and uh, discover like the nuances behind my needs, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I think that's, that's, I mean, that might just be part of getting older as well, but it's also part of the, I mean, something like jujitsu, something like rock climbing, they're both pretty long paths, right? You don't get good at them right away. There's a reason it, on average takes 10 years to get a black belt there's a reason that nobody climbs el cap in their first year of rock climbing although maybe it's some genetic maybe the bj pen of rock climbing has done that but yeah. for 99.999 percent of rock climbers they're not going to climb el cap in their first year uh so these uh these long-term procedures i i of course, it doesn't translate perfectly to the rest of life. Like, there's lots of people who are great jujitsu guys who managed to put the time in there who are just absolute train wrecks financially. So, it doesn't just having a long term vision in one aspect of your life doesn't automatically translate through to long term visions in the rest of your life. Critical thinking in one area doesn't automatically translate to critical thinking in another area. But I got to imagine it's better than nothing. Yeah. I got to imagine that in general, having critical thinking areas in one field. Is better than having it in no fields and having discipline in one area of your life is better than having it in no areas of your life. But specificity then again is for sure important. Um, so knowing that you spent so much of your time paddling um, and your love of paddling and also your love of martial arts, how do you balance the two and have has one ever conflicted with the other? Oh, it all conflicts all the time. Uh, 
it, I mean, there are only so many hours in the day and when you're, uh, trying to achieve many things, you, you can't achieve everything, right? I mean, the, the trade-off, there, there have to be trade-offs. Let's take the most extreme example first. Let's say George St. Pierre, right? Compulsive trainer. You know, you think, oh, what a perfect life, right? He's got all the time in the day to train. He's got 16 hours a day to train if he wants to train. And I love training. I'd love to be George St. Pierre. Okay. Well, first of all, he's probably not sleeping for eight hours a day. He's probably sleeping for 10 to 12 hours a day. So right away, you don't have 16 hours a day. And because of the nature of MMA training, you can't actually train for all of the remaining 12 hours a day. So you got to include feeding in there and massage therapy and appearing on the UFC show and doing interviews and commuting and maybe trying to convince a girlfriend not to break up with you. So really, he's got six hours a day to train. Can he train six? Let, let, let's say he can train for five or six hours a day. That's how much time he's got. Should he spend, how should he spend that? Right? There, there's jiu-jitsu, there's wrestling, there's striking, there's conditioning, there's strategy sessions, there's time spent watching tape on his opponent. All of those take away time, right? If you spend an hour doing kickbox or you just spend, do three kickboxing sessions in a day, you're not then going to be able to sneak in a jiu-jitsu session. Your body's going to explode. So even the guys who are sort of monomaniacally focused on just one thing, you think, MMA, they're still constrained by things like time, by energy, by the ability of their body to recover from training, mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and probably real life as well, right? If, if George St. Pierre's mother gets sick, he's got to take time off of training and drive down to his, visit his mom or something like that. So it's not this ideal world, even high-level athletes don't think they have enough time to train. Even high-level athletes, if they're super sharp in one part of their game, they're going to admit that they're weaker in another part. They just spent tons of time boxing. Is there, you know, getting it up to speed on boxing? Is their jiu-jitsu going to be as sharp as it would be if they hadn't spent that time boxing? Their answer is probably not. And what about wrestling? And what about their flying attacks where they're jumping off the cage you know that that takes time to train too so they're constrained uh normal human beings people who've got a job or kids or responsibilities they're even more constrained in my case i tried to do high level paddling this is more whitewater paddling uh and jujitsu at the same time because i really like both I, that's Pretty damn good open boater uh, so using those tiny little open canoes that are all kitted out in airbags. You can, you're strapped in there. You can roll them if you flip upside down. And I was doing kayaking, you know, creaking. Uh, depending on how you rank things, I was, I was pretty comfortable in grade four and was running some grade five. And that's, that's serious stuff, right? There's, there's a potential for things to go seriously wrong. And I had friends who died in rapids and I had friends who, you know, got really badly injured in rapids and and then uh as i was trying to juggle fire department stuff and grapple art stuff and young children stuff and my own training stuff i started paddling less and less often and i was still trying to paddle the reasonably difficult stuff because i enjoyed it i really enjoyed running technical runs 
And then one day I was on a river, it's called the Sioux. It's uh, in Whistler area here. And there's a kind of a waterfall series of ledges. I, I forget what the drop is. I, I'm guessing it's like a 15 foot drop over a very short time span that then goes into a head wall. So ideally you don't go over it upside down. And that's exactly what I did. I flipped in the water at the top of it. I tried rolling up. I rolled up in a boil. I flipped over again. I did a really shitty second roll and I did a horrendous third roll. Oh so gosh. first of all, I should have never flipped. If my skills had been sharp, I would have never flipped in the first place. If my skills had been sharp. I probably would have nailed the first roll. If my skills had been sharp, I would have nailed the second and for sure the third roll. All those were multiple points of failure. And as it turns out, I ended up running the waterfall upside down and then pitoning into the head wall, coming out of my boat and having a very exciting swim. None of which is good. And it could have gone way worse. I mean, you're, you're falling down a waterfall upside down in a boat. I mean, to break your neck isn't that far-fetched. Um, it's not a straight waterfall. It's more like a cascading waterfall. Mm -hmm. It's almost worse. Wow. And that got me thinking. It's like, I just don't have enough time to dedicate to the hard whitewater paddling to be good enough at it to do it reasonably safely. It's like, it's like those fighters towards the end of their career where they don't really train and they're getting fat and they've got a match coming up and some, they have no other way of making money. And hey, you want to fight, um, I don't know, some young up-and-comer in six weeks. It's like, oh, frick, I'd better start hitting, doing some road work and hitting the pads. And they're not doing it often enough and intensely enough to avoid getting seriously KO'd and taking way more damage than they would if they'd actually been training. So I, I, the analogy there was too strong. It's like I, I cannot right now justify paddling at a high level and doing jiu-jitsu. I have to choose, and I chose jiu-jitsu. Before, when I was young and dumb and had less responsibilities, I could do both. I could mm -hmm. conceivably go whitewater paddling in the morning, have a nice lunch, have a nap, go to jiu-jitsu in the evening. I could do both in a day. I, there's no way you could do that when you got a couple of jobs and a couple of kids. Zero. Mm -hmm. So I had a triage. And the, um, so I, I got rid of the hard white water paddling, which is very different from these longer expedition type paddling. Because if you're, if you're north of the Arctic circle, if you're, uh, if it's been 10 days since you've seen your last person, it's going to be another 20, it's going to be another 12 days till you make it to the coast and you're hundreds and hundreds of miles from the nearest way to escape. You're not running difficult white water. You're just not. It, uh, I mean, if you were, I were, um, training judo in the middle of a desert Island and we knew how to be there for the next 10 years, we wouldn't be trained judo all out because we know that the risk of dislocating something or breaking something is reasonably high. And I don't want you setting my bones. I don't want you trying to figure out how to plate, uh, a fractured forearm using a coconut and a couple of seashells, uh, <laughs> We would, we would perhaps still train judo, but we would train it pretty carefully. So similarly, I, I think the, the longer expedition style trips, I think that can be part of my future as a, I, I, I don't feel the need to be at the top of my whitewater game to run that stuff. It, it's pretty easy solution most of the time, but don't feel comfortable running it. I'll weight it, I'll line it, I'll portage it, uh, 
and uh, I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to be screwing around in a situation where if I lose my boat and I lose all my gear, not only is it a life-threatening situation, it's going to cost me $30,000 to get a flight out of there. And I'm going to lose $10,000 worth of gear. Like, uh, that's a pretty good disincentive from doing something stupid. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, just in closing, has your uh, responsibilities as a father, um, has that played into the the things that you pursue, like your interests and how you pursue jiu-jitsu and how you pursue paddling? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's impossible to, unless you're like a psychopathic level of disconnect, mm-hmm. um, you got to be much more careful with risking your own life when you're responsible for the lives of others. I mean, or even not responsible, but you would do tremendous damage to not yourself mm-hmm. by dying or becoming paraplegic or quadriplegic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, it goes beyond just yourself and your your own aspirations. So, if I'm trying to make a decision about uh, not so much in the jiu-jitsu area end of things but in the uh, the outdoor end of things like okay this looks like a really difficult thing what's the worst case scenario worst case scenario is drowning uh okay i my kids would be sad if i died <laughs> it probably hopefully be a well hopefully be a little bit more sad than sad if i died um and you you moderate your actions accordingly i think there's a a good reason that many of the world's best mountaineers, which has got a tremendous fatality rate, uh, a lot of them don't do their best work after they have kids. Most of them tend to do their best work before kids, when young in their careers. And it's, it's kind of tragic. Um, I mean, it's tragic when they die, but it's more tragic for me when they die and they leave behind their kids. Yeah, I agree. That's it. Having my son is certainly shaped, um, the kind of risk tolerance that I have. Um, but on top of that, it's shaped or it's changed like what I focus on. Cause I really love climbing in the Alpine. Right. And mm. even fairly like not mountaineering, more like Alpine rock climbing, mm. um, it's some snow climbing. So there's not, cause I don't like mountaineering cause I love it, but I don't like the, the pursuing of like more intense mountaineering. Cause the more intense it gets, the more dangerous it kind of gets. Um, but with climbing, that's, kind of not really the case so often like especially if you climb harder right you climb more and more vertical and less featured stuff and it's kind of like your waterfall situation like it's a lot better to fall on something that's entirely yeah. vertical and it's clean as opposed to like the cascading bounce, bounce, like, bounce. steps yeah like yeah. Ooh, I, I don't like that um yeah. well i mean it, it <laughs> i'm sure you and i both followed uli steck right yeah. that amazing speed climber out of switzerland and yeah. uh, I've I've been at the foot of the Eiger that he climbed in some like two hours and twenty minutes, and looked up at that and gone like, oh my, how can anyone do that? But he did. Yeah. And then he died on Lotse at the basically at the foot of Everest. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just such. <laughs> I mean, anytime you start following anybody in the climbing community, or you hear about somebody who did something really cool. And then you start following their career forward in time. The number of times that it ends in died in an avalanche uh, here, or you know, it's that's a it's fascinating. I mean, I, the aesthetics of it and the challenge of it are incredible. 
is that a risk I'm willing to take? Uh, no. Uh, as a as my old canoeing guide boss used to say, I can swim, but I can't fly. I can swim. So. <laughs> I like that. But and with with that said, like doing those alpine experiences, though, I'm more likely to do like local cragging stuff. Or even with kayaking, like I've wanted to get in white water or to do white water rafting, mm-hmm. but I'm pushing that into when my son's in his teens mm-hmm. and just taking him like, you know, uh, doing like pack rafting and taking mm-hmm. kayaks like up into the Alpine and just going on a mellow lake because like you being a single parent, it's like, well, if I do that, I can bond with him, you know, and mm-hmm. I can explore my passions more. And I can like I mean there's there's definitely ways to do white water safely. Not all white water is incredibly dangerous. A lot of it is it boils down to judgment more so than skill. Mm. Right? I mean, if if we if if you and I go rafting down an easy river, uh the odds of us getting in major trouble are fairly low so long as we have good knowledge and good judgment. Oh, look, there's a giant log jam there. We need the knowledge to know that that's a really dangerous situation on an easy river and we need the judgment to say look we're just going to take out here and, and bush crash for half a kilometer did not even get close to that stupid thing mm-hmm. uh number of people who drown on lakes is enormous right lakes are really dangerous so there that's judgment again like okay do i need to be on the middle of this lake or do i go along the shore you know what time of day is it how what's the weather like what are the odds of flipping that's not really skill that's judgment uh mountaineers try to use judgment well i don't think the avalanche conditions are that high it just seems there's a lot more unknowns and a lot more variables there that they never seem to get quite right oh that's why i stick to my um alpine rock climbing (laughs) yeah (laughs) because the rock seems pretty consistent as long as i stay protected (laughs) Yeah, and there's variables beyond your control, but it's just trying to limit the number of variables beyond your control. I mean, it's possible that a whole entire rock face could give way, or there could be an earthquake while you're on the rock face, and it doesn't matter if you're bolted in. Oh, yeah. okay, we'll grant you that. I mean, that's it's not a high percentage thing, or you get hit by lightning, or a, a you stomp to death by a, a charging mountain goat. Or, yeah. Okay, these things could happen, but statistically, they're not that likely. Again, that's judgment. That's judgment. Um, is there anywhere that people can learn more about you, Stefan? Um, well, if I'm not easily findable online, then I'm not doing my job. Uh, the I've got my own podcast, the Strenuous Life Podcast, which is sort of 50% jiu-jitsu MMA and 50% other things. Uh, it um, That's something that I'm really enjoying doing. Like you, I find the podcasting is is a really cool way to to meet people and to have interesting conversations you might not be able to have in other ways uh my hub site is grapplearts.com so that's where i've got all my articles it's where i've got my instructionals it's uh where i've got my online streaming stuff i've got an app it's called the the grapple arts bjj master app so that's got a link to my podcast got a link to my blog it's got all the instructionals that I have that are available in app form. I'm on Instagram, so that's Stefan underscore Kesting. I'm on YouTube. I'm on uh, Facebook. I'm on Twitter. But uh, those are those are kind of the, the major places. I, I would check out the site, grapplearts.com. I would uh, 
download the app. That's free to download. And I'd maybe subscribe to the podcast because if you don't like what I do, if it pisses you off sufficiently, it's easy enough to unsubscribe. So go look for the Strenuous Life podcast on uh, on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere that you want. And I didn't get to it in this episode, but your like contribution to jujitsu content online and spe- especially the free jujitsu content too, man, is incredible. Like, yeah. I've just been doing it a long time. I, I think I put my first video on YouTube in 2006. And I thought I was being so professional. <laughs> and, uh, um, so I've, I've loosened up, hopefully, somewhat since then. And uh, yeah, it's just, again, it's just too dumb to quit. <laughs> I know how that is. <laughs> uh, thank you, Stefan. I appreciate it, man. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you guys for listening to this episode of the podcast. You can find Stefan on Instagram at Stefan underscore casting and check out his website, uh, grapplearts.com and beginningbjj.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can head over to Becoming Human Podcast, um, share it with a friend, buy some merch, or even drop some comments. I'm going to play you out with a lecture from Ram Dass on loving yourself. I think it's, it's super great. It's really helped me out a lot, and I love to go back and listen to it um, just for subtle reminders. I hope you guys are doing well out there. Thank you guys for listening to this episode of the podcast. Bye. Ram Dass, yes. how can we love ourselves more? Please. Instead of the term, how can we love ourselves more, I'd like to ask, how can we accept ourselves more? Um, that in the way most of us have been socialized, the way in which a child gets uh, learns, the initial learning, is that... Um, the parent is under pressure to socialize the child, to make the child socially functional. And in doing that, they, um, they emotionally, whether they intend to or not, reward and punish the, the child for behaviors. And the result is that when that starts very early, before there is a lot of reasoning process between the parent and the child, the child develops certain emotional feelings that certain ways it is in its natural state are not acceptable. And the result is some feelings of unworthiness or inadequacy or something in most human beings as the result of socialization. Very few people ever come through socialization unscathed in some way or other. I mean, that's not an unfair statement, I don't think. Um, so in a way you could see that ego or personality is in a way built upon, and that's where Freud understood it. He saw that the, the, the uh, repression of id or impulse life because of the way the society has to deal with a child's impulses to get it to be socialized usually is left with a feeling that... Um, Somehow I'm bad. I have these things that are not acceptable. And um, so uh, then you build this social structure, and often what you end up with is a personality that says 
that's constantly looking to the world and other people, do you approve of me? Do you like me? Am I good enough? Am I acceptable to you? And uh, he, have I achieved enough? Here's a, and you get an A for effort and you feel good. And if you don't get the A, it's not like you feel nothing, you feel bad. And it's as if the baseline is negative, not zero. Do you hear the issue that I'm talking about? Now, um, so that you're constantly using your life experiences as a way to disprove a basic negative feeling about yourself. And that's a very, very common thing in, in social structure and in human development, in ego development. Now, um, so most, many psychological systems, like Freud's system, for example, works primarily with negative going to zero. That's the, the domain that you work with. Right behind that is where the spiritual dimension begins, and that's a part that looks at the universe and just sees it as it is. It doesn't... See, the, the, when you've got a negative thing, the opposite, when you're trying to undo it, you could undo it by ha emphasizing the positive. Like, if you don't like yourself, you could emphasize, I love myself, which is, how do we love ourselves more, is the question. Or we could say, let's go behind love and hate and find a place where we merely acknowledge ourselves, where we just allow our humanity. And we hear that there is negativity in us, and there is inadequacy, and we allow ourselves. And the word that I have come up with, I mean, that I'm finding most comfortable to work with, is the word appreciation. That we come to just appreciate what is. It's interesting, uh, the way I've looked at it, is that you go out into the, into the woods, and into the forests, and you look at trees and you appreciate the trees. You don't say that tree is good and that tree is bad because one tree is fat and one is thin or one is tall and one is short or one is bent and one is straight, unless you're in the lumber business. <laughs> For the most part, you just look at the trees and you, you appreciate them the way they are. They are what they are, and you can appreciate them. But the minute you get near humans, it's interesting that you immediately go into a judging mode. You come into better and worse. And you do that out of your own insecurity. You do that out of your own need constantly to be reassuring yourself. So you're saying that person is got more hair than I do, or that person is, is see, that's the one I picked. So <laughs> uh, I wonder why. That or... Or you go into, uh, you find dimensions constantly judging and equating, am I as good as, am I equal to, am I as good a mother, as, am I as beautiful a woman, am I as effective a this, a, a worker, am I, whatever it is, whatever dimension. And you get caught in constantly living in a judging realm. And um, if you start to practice seeing people as trees, I don't mean in the, you know, in the sense of just appreciating what they are, including yourself. It's just starting to appreciate yourself, appreciate your humanity. Like when I get, like I'm supposed to be, I'm Ram Dass and I'm, I've worked on myself and I'm supposed to be equanimous, loving, present, clear, uh, compassionate, um, accepting. Oftentimes I get tired, I'm angry, I'm petulant. 
I'm closed down. Now, for a long time, I get into those states and I would feel really embarrassed because that isn't who Ram Dass is supposed to be. So I would appear like I was warm, charming, equanimous, compassionate. And I, there was deviousness and deception involved. And then I realized that that is, that's bad business because that cuts us off from each other. And I had to risk my truth. I had to risk being human with other people and realize that what we offer each other is our truth. And our truth includes all of our stuff. And the first thing I had to do was accept my own truth. I had to allow myself to be a human being. And... Um, I think that I was very helped by my spook friend, Emmanuel, who, um, uh, my disembodied friend, who, when I said to him, Emmanuel, what am I doing on Earth? He said, why don't you try, uh, you're in, on Earth, why don't you try taking the curriculum? Why don't you try being human? And <laughs> I had always assumed the way to God was to deny your humanity and embrace your divinity. And then I realized that the way to truth might be through acknowledging the fullness of where I found myself to be, which was my humanity and my divinity. And not wallow in it, but acknowledge it. And not reverence it or judge it, just appreciate it, just allow it, allow my humanity. So I have gotten to the point now where I am what I am much more. And some people like it and some people don't like it. And if they like it, that's their problem. And if they don't like it, that's their problem. I don't take it all on myself and as much. And, um, well, it's a slow process. It's a slow process. Now, what I found was that, that um, as I started to allow myself to be human more, just allowed what I am, things changed much faster in me. I mean, things fell away more quickly. It was as if I was locked into a model which was based on that negativity, that dislike of myself. And once I just allowed that I am human with all the foibles, things started to flow and I could feel change occurring in myself. And then I would start to experience my own beauty. And it frightened me because it was so dissonant and discrepant from the model that I had cultivated of myself over the years that I had to do good in order to be beautiful. And the idea that I just am, that what is, when you look at a tree or a rock or a river, it is in its own way beautiful. You look at decay, it is beautiful. I know Laura Huxley, who's a very dear friend, um, in her kitchen, she has these jars over the sink and she takes old uh, beet greens and orange peels and things and sticks them in water in these long, beautiful pharmaceutical jars. And then they slowly mold and decay. And there are these beautiful decay formations and mold. And it's really garbage. It's garbage as art. And we look at it and it's absolutely beautiful. There's absolute beauty in that. And I've begun to expand my awareness to be able to look at the universe as it is and see what is called the horrible beauty of it. The horrible beauty of it. It's, I mean, there's horror and beauty in all of it because there's decay in all of it. I mean, we're all decaying. I mean, I look at my hand and it's decaying. And it's beautiful and horrible at the same moment. And I just live with that. And with that, I start to see the beauty in it. So we're talking about appreciating what is. Not loving yourself 
as opposed to not liking yourself, but allowing yourself. And as you allow, it changes. That's about, I think that gets behind the polarities. I think that's what's important. Okay? Question? Yes. 